Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. Playing the best possible defense right now is the best way to go. I really look to issues that are internal and issues that you can control because so much of this is really out of our control. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. Sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. The restaurateurs that have really thrived over the last 10 months are the ones that have embraced the reality of our situation. They've accepted the pandemic and reworked their concepts to meet these new challenges head on. Mindfulness, innovation, pliability, and strict adherence to standards have become the tools of our trade. Few encapsulate this more than Lindsay Tusk of Quince. From moving her restaurant into the middle of a farm to building out the retail arm of their business, they're making the pandemic work for them. Today, we unpack what's worked, what hasn't, and where we go from here. I didn't have mentors. I wish I did. There should be more of that teaching you just kind of about the fundamentals of running a business to start with. But I always looked for opportunities where we could leverage some scale and opportunities where you could diversify so that you kind of had a product for different markets or you could meet the public in terms of their demands or what they were looking for. So the next evolution or iteration was going to be retail, just to try retail and see how that worked along with restaurants. And as I said, we were still figuring that out and hope to pursue that. I think now you can add e-commerce onto that as well. But I think diversifying as much as you can kind of puts you in the strongest position you could be from a business or entrepreneurial perspective. Before you decided that the diversification was the way to go, did you see a model out there that inspired you to believe that? No, because actually a lot of things, and I could be totally wrong about this, I actually heard a lot of people speaking otherwise, saying, take one concept and roll that out. A lot of people said to us, Cotonia's a popular restaurant. People have often said, you know, you should just roll out a bunch of Cotonia's. And they're probably right. Like that would have been the easier thing to do. And who's to say, maybe we'll still do that. I don't know Mm -hmm. really what the future holds. It's too hard to know right now. But I don't think that's a bad piece of advice. If you've got a concept that's working really well, to repeat it in different markets. I think it depends all on your goals and your values. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all answer. What were your goals going into the first restaurant? And how have they changed over time? 
Well, I think it was very personal because we're a husband and wife team. I wanted Mike's food to enter into the world. I wanted people to enjoy the food that he was cooking. I come from kind of a design family, design background, and I wanted to create beauty in the dining room. I don't know, it sounds kind of naive now, but they were just really simple, sweet reasons. It was a passion and we just wanted to breathe life into that passion. And it felt like a pretty selfish endeavor. Like Mike loved cooking. I loved hospitality. I loved design. I could design a dining room. I could have fresh flowers every day in the dining room. I mean, they were, it wasn't a grand plan by any means. It was very, very modest. And then I think one step at a time that we were able to then figure out kind of a larger vision because I think people work so hard in our industry. It's tedious, it's backbreaking, it's monotonous, it's repetitive, and they need to be given an opportunity to make a living and have a good quality of life. And I think those things are probably being examined quite myopically right now about what kind of quality of life does the chef or the restaurateur or someone who works in a restaurant, what is the quality of life post-pandemic? And the choices that we make, I think, are really in, are being examined right now. Have you and Mike discussed that since the pandemic began? You would think we would have. You would think we would have the time, <laughs> but we haven't honestly had a minute. Like I've never worked so hard for an empty and closed business. Yeah. I mean, it's just been nonstop for us just because of the constant pivoting. We haven't, but we should, because we want to make sure that when we do come back, we come back to a better version of what we were doing when we closed. Let's talk about the pivoting. So was there intention involved? I'm sure you've seen just like I have that people out there have made a thousand pivots and you could classify them into two categories. One is people sitting down and deciding we're going to embrace this. This is going to be the direction that we're going to take forward. And then you see there's another category where people are just trying to stay open. They're just trying to survive. And you seem to have fallen into the first category. Was there a concerted effort, a conversation that took place that said, these will be brand extensions. We will become more of ourselves through this process. I wouldn't characterize it that way. Some of the decisions that we made were definitely like flight or fright decisions. And especially early on in March and April, when there was no perspective on what was happening, no time horizon, there was a lot of hand wringing and what are we going to do? And I had a sense that we just needed to pivot to product to make house-made products and to sell them. That was my earliest kind of reaction. And each restaurant took a really, really different path during the pandemic. Catonia took a very predictable or what you would say kind of similar to what other restaurants have done and pivoted to takeout and delivery. And it wasn't that we were going to make money. We kind of knew that we would lose money with that model. And we have and continue to. But it keeps the team together. It mm -hmm. keeps people focused. It gives people jobs. It gives them a reason to kind of organize their day. I mean, it's really so there's just kind of something to do in some ways. And people still enjoy. I don't think they're enjoying putting food in a box. But I think that those who want to work are really happy to be working. As I mentioned, Verju, we turned to retail and really wanted to amplify retail wine sales. And we sold a lot of house-made products at Verju. 
We also have a farmer's market on Fridays and Saturdays at Berju, mostly for the produce from Fresh Run Farm, which is our farm in Bolinas, just about an hour north of San Francisco. And that story is probably the best one to tell in terms of our pandemic pivot and that we moved quince to the farm. So I think it was in end of June, beginning of July, we started a series of lunches and dinners out in Bolinas, out on the farm and hosted people in some greenhouses and out in the field. And that lasted for about three, four months. And that was great. We've had this farm for about five years. And the idea that the farm kind of came to us with deliveries every week it seemed right that we should go to the farm now. And it was a lot of diners and people's first experiences getting outside of the house when they would come to these lunches. And they loved it because they would do a self-guided tour on the farm. They would talk to Peter Martinelli, who's a fifth generation farmer. They would get to know about kind of the local food ecosystem up in Bolinas. And it was great for us because we were outside and everybody wanted to be outside and short of the fires and the smoke. And there were definitely some obstacles, but it was a great experience. And I think we'll look back on that really fondly. And when I say that it was really bootstrapped, there was no kitchen, there was no hot water, there was no bathrooms. Like we really had to construct everything very ad hoc, very different experience. And obviously then eating in the Quince dining room, but people really responded to it. And I think it was an emotional response to being outside on a farm, kind of surrounded by all this greenery and just beauty. So we did that, as I mentioned, I think through August, September. And we also did a few dinners up in Petaluma at McAvoy Ranch, which is an olive oil ranch, over 2,000 acres and olive trees, olive groves, and did a series of lunches out there. And then we were going to pivot again from McAvoy to Napa Valley to our friends, Christina and Lee Hudson's property up there, Hudson Ranch and Vineyards. And we were doing about two or three weeks of dinners and lunches up there until the latest stay-at-home order, which shut down not only San Francisco, but shut down Napa as well. So Quince is kind of dormant at the moment. Catania is still doing takeout and Berju is still running as a retail store. I'm sure you've learned a lot through this process, just through all of the pivots and different iterations. When the world gets back to work and everything turns to whatever the new version of normal is, have you learned anything new about your business? It's like, are they going to be the same when you reopen? You say, oh, it's time to get back to work and everything is the same. Have you changed? Have the businesses changed in some intrinsic way? Yeah. I mean, I think the restaurant model, I wouldn't say it was broken, but I would say definitely needs to be re-examined as to how restaurants can make more revenue. Once again, it comes maybe to that point on diversification. Once restaurants are open, I don't think that to-go and delivery will be marginalized. But I do think outdoor dining in San Francisco is not something that we had. The city is quite conservative and very regulated when it comes to the use of outdoor spaces. But I think that the response to outdoor dining has been tremendous in San Francisco. And I think universally beloved. And I think that will stay. That's important. Cocktails, to-go cocktails, that will stay too. That has been very popular. And I can see that continuing on past the pandemic. I have looked at parts of my business that I haven't looked at 
really, really scrutinized for quite some many years and taking it apart piece by piece and saying, is this important? Is this a must have? Or is this luxury? Like, what do you really need to strip down and run a business as efficiently as possible? Mm -hmm. So I would say that the restaurants will definitely be more efficient moving forward. Yeah, there's just things that you're going to do differently as to how much value they really, really offer and how much of it is just maybe not necessary. Have you given any thought to all of the ideological issues that have been brought up, the future of gratuity, subsidized health care, 401ks? Is there a world that you can envision where somebody is able to work in hospitality for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and retire? I certainly hope so. We, as an organization prior to the pandemic, we were in a tip pool between the front of the house and the back of the house. And that tip pool, all tips gratuities were pooled. And we were almost at a 50-50 split between the front of the house and the back of the house. And we had a very good culture around it, very transparent, was run by the employees. It's funny though, like you try to solve one problem and another problem comes up. And what happened with the pooling of the tips is that hourly employees were making more money than management. Here you were, you were trying to kind of address the parity issue between the kitchen and the dining room. And what happened, it created another parity issue between kitchen management and hourly positions. So since the pandemic, we've actually gone to a service charge model and we'll continue to do so when we come out of the pandemic and pay higher hourly wages. In the city of San Francisco, there's employer-mandated 100% health care coverage. So employees have their health care completely, at least in our organization, 100% covered, including dental, including vision. And we also have a 401k program, an employer matching 401k program. So everything that we're doing, and it takes time. I mean, it's not like you wish you could just do everything overnight. But everything we're doing is to try to be able to provide enough revenue and enough income so that people actually not only make a living wage, but a really thrivable wage that they're happy and they've got a good quality of life and they've got benefits. And I think certainly the pandemic, there's a real reckoning in that within the industry and within the community. And it feels like it's been very fragile. I think people have felt the fragility of work and the kind of employment that restaurants can provide. And frankly, we just need to raise prices. We need to charge more for food. And it's difficult because I don't think the public understands that. Americans have really have had cheap food for a really long time. But if you want people to be paid well, we've got to charge more for food. So I think we'll see. I know that when we reopen back to the public, we'll be looking at 20% increases, I think, in menu prices. So we'll see how it goes over. But I don't see any other way. San Francisco, you know, is a very expensive city to run a business in. It's very regulated. There's a lot of taxes. So if we can get some relief on some taxes, I think that would help as well. Agreed. I was based out of Los Angeles and Los Angeles is incredibly expensive as well. And there's this really difficult dynamic. What can people afford to pay relative to what do we need to charge? Because Obviously, if you just raise prices to a level that meets all of these requirements in terms of subsidized health care, retirement, living wage, it makes it really easy to just roll this out. But I think we're coming out of a time where people were more worried about just being able to stay open 
than they were doing what was best for themselves. And I think what you bring up is really poignant because if we don't advocate for ourselves as an industry and as operators and as employees within the industry, I think it's going to be really hard for anyone else to have our back. Working with Independent Restaurant Coalition during these shutdowns and fighting pretty hard for the Restaurants Act, it's really become clear. I couldn't put my finger on it, like where the indifference or perceived indifference was coming from when it comes to getting political action and getting political will around the Restaurants Act. At times, it's beyond frustrating. But I think that we're such a desegregated community, the independent restaurant community, they're not used to hearing from us, whether it be on a local level, state level, national level. It's kind of the smallest voices that are being most impacted by this pandemic and the changes that need to happen within this industry with how labor is viewed, how it's categorized, how it's monetized, how it's taxed. It's clear that politicians don't understand how restaurants work. I'd like to believe if they did, we would have seen a lot more action and a lot sooner, and we would have seen the Restaurants Act. I hope I'm not being too generous with politicians, but (laughs) I I just don't think they understand. And I think they're starting to listen. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I'm hopeful. Well, to take some of the personal responsibility myself, I can only speak for me and my own experience, but I've done a very poor job as a restaurateur of explaining to the public and even other people in the industries how difficult it is to do this job, how tight the margins are. I think when you see tragedy again and again and again, you get desensitized to it. And I think the American public and thus our politicians are very used to seeing restaurants open and close overnight. And that failure has just become part of their day to day as well. Certainly not defending them, but I do want to take some responsibility for that myself. Whenever anyone asked how I was doing, I was always having the best day of my life. Yeah, well, I think that's in the DNA, right? With that hospitality gene, you tend to characterize things a little bit rosier than they are. You never want to pierce the veil because it's just by your very nature that you're probably not going to tell someone how bad it is. And you're right. I share with you in that responsibility. I don't think I've done a particularly good job of communicating it. Or also, we're tired, I think, as an industry, typically. When you're working 80 hours, it's hard to put words and messaging to the experience of running a business. I don't know that necessarily there's been a lot of time to do it. And I know that sounds kind of lame, but we need to make the time and we need to try to get people to understand the cost and the value of things. And hopefully we're not that far apart when it comes to values. But I think a lot of education needs to happen. Independent Restaurant Coalition might become one of those trade organizations past the political initiatives and the political action that we're taking now, which I'm hoping it will be there on the other side and we can deal with some of these issues when it comes to communications and education. And you're not just working with the IRC. Can you talk to me about the Feed the Future campaign? Yeah, I would have never had the time to do this if I was running the restaurant. So this is one kind of maybe silver lining is early on, there was that brush that you saw from a lot of restaurants to do GoFundMe campaigns. And We decided to do something similar, but actually set up a 501c3. So donations would be tax deductible and it'd be something that kind of would outlive the pandemic. So we set up feedthefuture.org, I should say. There's a government feedthefuture, which is .gov. So this one's .org, which gives grants and immediate direct assistance to our employees, first and foremost, 
who were not eligible for unemployment benefits for various reasons, whether they were undocumented or whether they were here on visas. The Quinn's Kitchen had a good amount of international interns and students and people working from other countries that were not eligible to get unemployment and kind of got a little stranded, whether they were going to stay in the United States or they'd be returning to their home country. So we were able to get them immediate assistance. And as I mentioned, anybody else who were having a hard time getting unemployment benefits and then grants to small farms, local, primarily West Marin farmers that needed to try the grants for them to establish supply chains to local farmers markets as they weren't able to sell to restaurants. So it's ongoing. It will certainly keep going. And it is something that I'm proud of. I'm amazed, amazed at how hard it is to set up a 501c3. I had no idea the hoops that you go through. It took months and months and months and months and so much documentation. The IRS really tough on 501c3s, especially when you try to start one during a crisis. They definitely question the motivations and where the money is going. But we had some attorneys that did the work pro bono and were incredibly helpful to us. But that was definitely an experience. I can imagine, but you guys definitely did some good work and I'm sure it'll survive the pandemic. I hope so. I hope so. I hope it'll grow. I mean, I'd like to work on its charter. I'd like to build its board. I'd really like to see how the mission evolves. It's definitely a work in progress. As I said, it was set up to deal with immediate need, but I would like to explore ideas about how to strengthen up local food systems and how the supply chains from farmers to the public in a way that's accessible and a way that's affordable. As soon as I know we're going to survive this, then I'll give that more attention, more thought. One of the really cool things that I think has come out of the pandemic is Quince & Co. And I have a thousand questions regarding it because I'm a huge advocate of diversification. And I think that retail can become a core revenue stream in so many independent restaurants moving forward. And I'd just love to get your perspective on it. How did you guys decide what products to sell? Are you using a co-packer? Was it expensive? Yeah, it's still definitely a work in progress. It was challenging because all three restaurants are so different and nobody would associate Verju with Quince and vice versa. The line between Quince and Catonia could be more easily made and more easily understood, but we really needed to have an umbrella or like parent brand that would kind of roll up all three. And that's when we came up with Quince & Co. And we'll be launching a website under Quince & Co. But it's basically looking at the kitchens and looking at what house-made products are coming out of the kitchens, what specialty acquired products are that would kind of fill the pantry that aren't necessarily house-made, but are special. And there's a story behind them. And then a way to feature some of our most favorite vendors, whether they be farmers or ranchers. So that's the start of Quince & Co. And then we're working on a membership subscription model as part of Quince & Co., But those details, yeah, are kind of still forthcoming. We have to work that out a little bit more. Any hard lessons learned or advice in the creation process thus far? Spend time really kind of thinking about what you want your brand to say or where you want it to be in a couple of years from now. Be just very thoughtful and think big. I think this is a time for chasing down some other opportunities and not necessarily opening up to do exactly what you did before you closed. I think this is a moment to be reflective. I think retail 
opening up that revenue stream for restaurants can really serve a lot of different purposes and it can really engage a community, your diners, your regulars. This is a different way for them to experience your restaurant. If you can find a couple of retail products that really identify with you and identify with the restaurant. And I don't think it has to be huge. I don't think you have to have like a thousand SKUs. It can be a very like curated collection. But for us, it was having different kinds of pastas, pasta collections, whether they be fresh pastas or dry extruded pastas, kind of going deep on that, knowing that was something that Catonia was really known for. Whatever you're passionate about, whatever it is that is, whatever that programming is within your restaurant, look to find a different way to get it out to market since they can't experience it within your four walls. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you would like to offer? I want to stay hopeful. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, but I think it's a long tunnel still. And I think that planning for another year of ups and downs and uncertainty is... I've been wrong about so many things about this pandemic in terms of a time horizon or when I thought certain things would happen. I think playing the best possible defense right now is the best way to go, just to play possum as long as you can and hold on to your resources as much as you can and stay focused. I really look to issues that are internal and issues that you can control because so much of this is really out of our control. Small wins, you know, small successes keep your spirits up a hundred percent. There's a lot of people out there, you know, with the IRC, there's a lot of people that are doing really good work and people should find out about the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, if they don't already know about it. It's a really dedicated group of chef and restaurateurs that are working really hard to save this industry. A really wonderful community of people. Check it out. And also check out Feed the Future. If someone is interested in in that process or a 501c process, C3 process, excuse me, I'd be more to happy to share what I know and provide any insight for anyone who wants to do something very similar. That's Lindsay Tusk of Quince. For more on their projects, go to quincerestaurant.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our other content or read our daily publication, go to fullconf.media. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.